Where, O oh, death, is now thy sting? There is no sting in death for those who are lovers of and followers of this Christ, who is not only crucified, but now risen for his people. We are a people who have been delivered from the dread of the grave. We are a people who now know that this three score in ten is not all there is. That there is an eternity that awaits us. A promised reward, an eternity of felicity and bliss for all those who are in Christ Jesus. We are a people who have been bought with a price. A people never to be lost. A people never to slip through the fingers of God. A people who are safe. Safe in eternal everlasting love. Ours, Father, is the great privilege and pleasure of worshiping the thrice holy God. And we have gathered this morning to, to give ourselves afresh and anew to the God who made us and then redeemed us in Christ Jesus. We are yours. We have been bought with the price and we are yours. And it is our pleasure to be thought of as sons and daughters of the living God. Father, might our time spent here this morning not be wasted as some kind of spiritual ritual. Might it make us new. Might it make us different. Might these 60 small minutes that we spend here change us for the rest of our days and weeks and months and years. Might minutes be parlayed into years as we spend time fixated on the God who loves us. And redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Our Father, it is always our pleasure to give. We are a people who were once poor but have now been made rich in so many ways. And so, Father, thank you for this opportunity to express tangibly that we love you. And that we trust you with our future. That we've never been safer. We've never been more well provided than we are when we trust in the God of our, of our salvation for provision. And now, O oh God, receive our gifts. They are small, but they are tokens of a lifelong commitment that we've made to you. We thank you, O oh God, that we we will persevere, not because we are strong, but because you are. We love you, Lord God. We are sorry we love you so little. But by your grace, enable us to love you more. We ask it as always. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I invite your attention to God's Word at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. You follow as I read from uh, this portion of that which we believe to be the very inerrant and infallible inspired Word of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? 
And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. There's a difference in people who live on Saturday and people who live for Saturday. You know them, people who live for Saturday. They, um, they can't wait for weekends. Saturday is weekend. The word weekend is, is taken almost, taken on almost, um, mythical proportions. You come to my fitness club on Friday night, about five o'clock, Friday evening, about five o'clock, and you'll hear the same song every year, or every, every week. Same, same tune. Five o'clock every Friday. Weekend, do just what you want to do. Saturday is, is a day of independence. It's a day of, uh, of celebrating. Uh, <clears throat> each week we, we have one day where all of our frustrations of the work week are set aside and we do family stuff. We do, um, home stuff. We do garden stuff. We do my stuff. And then Saturday night is the time to, uh, to laugh and, and to be social and to party. Well, this morning, um, I, I want to compare people who live on Saturday and people who live for Saturday. And I hope it will become clear as I go along. But <clears throat> I'm not primarily talking about people who live for Saturday. I'm talking about people who live... On Saturday. You know them? You're some of them. It's people like you and me who um, live in between an accomplished Friday victory and we await a future Sunday consummation. We look back at a Friday called good and, and, uh, and we await a Sunday called consummation. Gang, um, I want you to see the difference this this Easter. I want you to see a difference that that resurrection is supposed to make in the lives of people who say they believe it. You know, um, I hope you will remember, uh, however faintly, but you may remember that last Easter, I closed my sermon with a story that was first told by Tony Campolo. It was a story that was made into a movie and a book, and the title of the, the story was, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. But Campolo, in that story, he leaves out a day. He, um, there's, there's another day in there that um, has no name. The other two days have earned names on the Christian calendar. We know of Good Friday, we know of Easter Sunday. <clears throat> but we live on Saturday. That is the day um, in between victory 
and consummation. You know, um, what the disciples lived in, uh, in, uh, in a small scale, what they experienced for three days, um, being overcome with grief, having lost their leader to crucifixion, what they experienced for three days, you and I experience on a cosmic scale. It is Saturday on planet Earth. And will Sunday ever come? Will the consummation of all this ever really take place? <clears throat> you know, it's um, hopefully uh, helpful to you as we remember that we live out our days on a Saturday. An in-between day with no name. I read about a woman whose grandmother was uh, buried or is buried in a um, under a 150 year old live oak tree in a uh, church cemetery in an Episcopal church in rural Louisiana and in accordance with her wishes she has one word inscribed on her tombstone and that one word is waiting that's what people who live on Saturday are doing we're waiting we know of Good Friday. We also know of, of Easter Sunday. <clears throat> but ours, ours is that long day in between. That long journey of Saturday. One of the things that Easter is for us, ladies and gentlemen, is a, is a down payment. A down payment that there's more to come. Jesus having conquered death means that you and I can look forward to the same kind of victory. But until it happens, we wait. And resurrection ought to change the way that we wait. It did for Paul. And that's what I want you to see today, is how, at least a portion of how, and a, a belief in the resurrection changed the way that Paul lived. This whole section, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I think most of you already know, this whole section is a section about the resurrection. Paul is, he takes a whole chapter, writes it to the Corinthian church, and defends the literal and bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> You'll have to excuse me. This is, uh, didn't have this in Hungary. I had this after I got back to the pine dust of Memphis, but... <clears throat> Um, he writes this chapter of Scripture to defend a, a doctrine that was ve or a, an event that was very important to him. And in some circles, it was being denied. And so this whole section of, of his letter to the Corinthian church is devoted to his defense of the resurrection. Uh, he gives us here this multi-pronged defense of the resurrection. He, if you read the chapter this afternoon, you'll notice that he, that he defends it one way, and then he turns around and defends it another way, and another way, and another way. Part of his defense for the resurrection is very, very practical, and it borders on the, uh, on the uh, unspiritual. And, and I was attracted to it, maybe because it is unspiritual, and so am I. <clears throat> but this particular portion of his argument is, is stunning to me. 
did you, did you listen as I read it? He begins by saying, otherwise, that's in verse 29. Otherwise, that is, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, then why? Why do I stand in danger every hour? Why do I put myself in jeopardy? Why do I die daily if there's no resurrection? <clears throat> and why do I fight wild beasts in Ephesus if there's no resurrection? Why do any of this if there's no resurrection? What, what, what am I doing this for? Why am I living the kind of life that I'm now living if there's no resurrection? What kind of fool would, would go through what I go through if there is no resurrection? Why do I expose myself to frequent danger? Why do I endure? Why do I risk? Why do I throw away my life? Why do I sacrifice if there's no resurrection? Why? You see, ladies and gentlemen, for Paul, the only way any sense could be made of anything that he was doing was in the light of the fact of the resurrection. It was the resurrection that, that made sense or brought sense to everything that he was doing. Ladies and gentlemen, why do I fight wild beasts in Ephesus? Why do I do that? You've got to be a fool. You've got to be some sort of fool to do what I do. If there is no resurrection for him, for Paul, everything that he experienced, every tear that he shed, every burden that he bore, every, every, every risk that he took, every sacrifice that he made, it only had value if Jesus Christ had resurrected from the dead. The heartaches of living on Saturday become bearable because of a promised resurrection. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to notice in the text, Paul doesn't say that any of this stuff is good. It's not good that I'm constantly in danger. It's not good that I wrestle with wild beasts. I'm not trying to applaud that. I'm not trying to encourage some... some um, uh, cult that will wrestle with wild beasts in the name of Jesus. He's simply saying the only reason that any of that is sane is in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only thing that prompts me to make any sacrifice that I make and to engage and endure in any danger that I experience is because I'm promised something about life after death. Otherwise, all of this is foolishness. It's all, it's all insanity. If there is no resurrection. <clears throat> if there is no resurrection, ladies and gentlemen, then I ought to become a, become a, 
a cynic like the rest of you guys. I ought to, um, you know, eat and drink and be merry. I ought to, I ought to live my life for pleasure. I ought to become a hedonist. Because tomorrow brings nothing but the end of life. I'm going to live for Saturday instead of on Saturday. I'm going to live for pleasure if there's no resurrection. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is arguing. He is arguing for the resurrection using his own life as an illustration of the absurd. Paul points to himself and says, do you know what kind of fool I must be if there is no resurrection? Do Do you see that some of the things that I'm doing are absolutely insane? I mean, what kind of person has divorced himself from from sanity to wrestle with a bunch of wild beasts in Ephesus if there is no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, then all of this is reasonable. All of it is sane. All of it, every sacrifice I make, Every attempt I endeavor, every danger that I experience, every sacrifice I make, it all makes sense in the light of the resurrection. Why do I expose myself to constant peril? The basic assumption of this portion of this of First Corinthians 15 is this. The basic assumption is this. Christianity is a foolish ruse if there is no hope beyond this life. But that which makes every sacrifice worth it. That which gives meaning to every danger, every sorrow, every heartache. That which makes, that brings life into focus is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it is not true, then all that I'm doing is... um, is the motions of a man divorced from reality. But if there is a resurrection, then all of my sorrows are redeemed. All of my hardships have meaning. All of my sacrifices are sensible. All of my waiting Is understandable. Because he's resurrected. And promises that I will too. 
No sacrifice is too great in response to him. It's all a part, ladies and gentlemen, of what it means to live on Saturday. Otherwise, let's live like beasts if we're going to die like them. For heaven's sakes, ladies and gentlemen, if, we're all, if, if, if all we are is body, then protect the body and pamper that body and soothe the body and coddle the body. Live for Saturday. Plan for your comfortable retirement. And don't take any risks. Don't give your life away. Hedge all your bets. But those who stake their eternities on a risen Christ, those people have lives that are altogether different. At least Paul's was. Ladies and gentlemen, one thing that Easter should be for us is a call to live heroically for Jesus Christ. It is a call to live sacrificially for Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, then for heaven's sakes, get to your booze. If there is no resurrection, then eat, drink, and be merry. Just like he mentions here. Live for pleasure. But ladies and gentlemen, we who say we believe in a resurrection, are we too living for pleasure? That doesn't make any sense. You want a, you want a position that's irrational? I'll give you a position that's irrational. It's the position of the person who says, I believe in Jesus. I believe that I'm a Christian. I believe that eternity awaits me. I believe that the death, that the grave holds no sting. I believe that death has been conquered, but I'm going to go out and live for pleasure. I'm going to go out and stack up as many dollar bills as I can possibly stack up. Because I'm going to take care of this thing. And I'm going to make sure that it's as comfortable as I can make it. Because I live. I live for Saturday. Paul, on the other hand, is saying, I'm, I'm exposed to constant peril and constant danger. I'm fighting with wild beasts and... Why am I doing it? I'll tell you why I'm doing it. Because I believe in a resurrection. My friends, measure yourself by that Pauline standard. There are numerous Pauline standards in the New Testament. But measure yourself by that one. Just by this one right here. To what do you expose yourself? What sacrifices are made? What perils are run? What hardships are endured? Knowing that they all make sense, that they are all reasonable in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Paul said, I wrestle with wild beasts, and the only consolation I have is that there's a resurrection. For him, nothing was beyond consideration. When I consider the eternity that awaits me. That compared to this puny 70 years. The others who denied the resurrection found it much wiser and much more uh, reasonable to design a life that maximizes pleasure and comfort and pampering. I don't blame them. I don't blame them. If this is it, then for God's sake, go out there and live for 70 years and then it's over. But this is not it. And if we believe, if we believe in something that is awaiting us at resurrection, then it's supposed to make a difference in the way that we live. So, so tell me, which of those do you most resemble? Who, who are you? H- how are you choosing to live out your life? And based on what assumptions? Tell me. On what assumptions have you founded a life? Is one of those assumptions that there's a life of an eternity awaiting you? Well, for some of us, it doesn't look like it. It looks like that the only life we know of is the one that we're feathering with more comforts and more pleasures. Ladies and gentlemen, a belief in eternity ought to change the way that we live. If I could illustrate, and and some of you are not going to like my illustration, but uh, one of the things that we did in Hungary uh, more than I do here is that we watched videos. <clears throat> you know, I said earlier that we had a phone, but we really didn't need it because there was no one to call and no one to call us. And um, once we found somebody to call, we didn't know how to use the silly thing because you have to put in different numbers for this area and different numbers for that area. And if it's a cell phone, you got to do it different. And it was just... We stayed there 12 weeks, and we did not figure out how to use the phone. We had a, um, they gave us a cell phone, and we probably used it in 12 weeks, maybe four times. And we tried to use it about 40, but we never figured it out. But one of the things that we discovered about um, missionaries is that they're addicted to videos. I understand. (laughs) I mean, when it snows for three days, and, and, um, I've never seen snow like that. I've, I've, never, I've never shoveled snow. Well, I have now. Um, I shoveled snow, and, and about four hours later, it was like 
Jimmy, did you shovel snow? Uh, but I was back out there trying to shovel it again. But uh, anyway, um, one of the things that we did, uh, you know, I don't do this much at home, really. I mean, I probably, uh, in the previous 12 months, I don't even remember a video that I watched. But, I mean, there you are, and uh, you, you watch videos. And one of the videos that I watched, uh, to many of your chagrin, I'm sure, is a uh, Academy Award winner, The Gladiator. Now, let me make my apologies real quickly. Um, uh, for those of you who don't um, think that was something that I should have watched, I just want you to know that desperate men do desperate things. <clears throat> and um, and it, was, it was the property of a missionary, so I, I felt justified in watching it. Well, um... Uh, I don't watch movies that much, particularly blood and guts ones. I can't, I can't stand them. The last one I saw was Air Force One, which was about five years ago, and that cost me three nights sleep. So I don't watch all those things. All that, that violence just tears me up, et cetera. So, uh, you know, but again, um, when you're desperate, you'll, you'll do a lot of things. But one of the things, I mean, you know, I, I looked the other way in the battle scenes and, and um, never saw much of it. But anyway. Um, I didn't figure this out until the end, and then I went back and looked at it a little bit more, and, uh, and I, I feel very justified in saying what I'm saying. Did you notice what one of the themes of that movie? By the way, there's a whole lot of discussion out there about uh, the gladiator being a Christ figure. Did you know that? That the gladiator was the, um, the, uh, the ruler who become a, became a slave so that he could liberate his people. It was a Christ figure. Well, I don't know whether that was in there or not, but I do know for sure this was in there. Because the movie opens and closes with it. And it is woven into the warp and woof of the movie. Remember it? Remember how the movie opens? You remember it? Let me tell you about it. It opens with this hand. All you see is a man's hand. And he's raking through this field of grain. Now, I don't know what kind of grain it was. I wasn't born in the farm. Um, it could have been oats. It could have been wheat. It could have been barley. It could have been soybeans for all I know. But he was walking through this field, and he was raking his hands through this, this, this grain. Do you know what that was? That was Elysian fields. He mentions it right before the first battle scene. You know, they're fighting the Germans, and, <clears throat> and he says to his troops, if you find yourself alone, and you're riding through, through, a, uh, through a, a field with sun on your face, you're there. You're in Elysian fields. Do you know what Elysian fields are? That is the Roman concept of the afterlife. You may recall that the bad guy Commodius, or Commodus, the, the bad emperor, uh, murders his wife and son. Remember that? And um, in, in through this whole unfolding of the movie, he's engaged in conversation after conversation after conversation about, do you think you will see them again? Remember the big... African slave. And he asked, I know he had two conversations with him. On one conversation, he says, he, he, he breaks in and he finds Russell Crowe kissing those little statuettes. And he says, do you think they hear you? And he says, of course they hear me. And he says, what do you say to and he says, well, I say to my son, keep his heels down when he rides his horse. And what I say to my wife is none of your business. Remember that? 
And then the final scene comes, and right before the battle between him and the emperor takes place on the fields of the, uh, on the, the, the dirt of the Colosseum, he's hanging there, and, 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 Commod- and Commodus comes in and stabs him and all that business, and, and, um, and the gladiator looks at him and says, life or death smiles at all of us, and all we can do is smile back. Remember that? Do you know what the gladiator, do you know what one of the themes of that movie is, ladies and gentlemen? Is the hope of the afterlife. The thing that made sense for the gladiator is the hope that he would see his wife and his son again. The thing that prompted him to live with, with, with abandon. The thing that made him so heroic in the face of all those odds was his confidence that he would see his wife and his son in Elysian fields. And then the battle between the gladiator and the emperor. And of course we know who wins. But the gladiator is dying. And he's staggering around. You remember, remember the, the emperor's already dead. And the, um, um, he's, he's already won the, 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 the big battle, but he's staggering around and he makes, he tells him to free the slaves and all the slaves are freed and, and then he falls down on the, on the floor of the Colosseum. And then the princess Lucilla comes running out of the stands and cradles his head in her hands. And he, and, 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 and then in the cinematography, you remember there was this flash of a, of the fields and the gate. You remember that? And then he dies. Well, I think before he dies, she says, go to them. Go to them. And he dies. And then there's this piece of cinematography where he's transported. And then you see his wife and his son. And the closing line is, comes out of the mouth of the, the African slave. And he's, he's, in the, he's in the Colosseum and he's burying those little statuettes that belong to the gladiator. And, and he says, now we're free. I will see you again. But not yet. Not yet. And that's the end of the movie. That movie ends on the great hope of the Christian that awaiting us, ladies and gentlemen, is an eternity, an eternity of felicity and bliss in the presence of God. Now, why doesn't Change us. One of the stories we heard was uh, about a missionary couple who, um, several, I think it was in '97 when, when our country led the um, the bombing assault of the former Yugoslavia, Kosovo, um, Serbia, 
we met lots of people who were displaced, lost their homes, lost their jobs. They ran and they fled and they became refugees because my country, my country bombed them. It was very difficult sitting across from the, the table at lunch and asking them, what did you think about my country bombing your country? But one of the stories is when we were bombing Belgrade, all the missionaries packed up and left, except one family. And they huddled in a bomb shelter in a basement someplace while their country was bombing all around them. And um, all the other missionaries left, except them. Why would you do something that stupid? Isn't it reasonable to pack your bags and get out and protect yourself? Head home! Boy, I wanted to. Get out of there! What are you doing? Why are you staying? It only makes sense in the light in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. While we were there, there's a terrorist attack in Haifa. A terrorist attacked a bus in Haifa. Twelve people were killed. We were to have supper with the head of Camp's Crusade for Christ in all of Europe on a Thursday night. On Wednesday afternoon, he canceled. He had to fly to Haifa, because maybe you don't know this, but on that bus that was attacked by a terrorist in Haifa, Israel, was the 13-year-old daughter of some missionaries to, of Camp's Crusade for Christ. Their 13-year-old daughter, and this guy that we had supper with, Larry Thompson, walked up and down the beaches of the Mediterranean with this man who had lost his daughter in a terrorist attack in Haifa. You know what? They're staying. They're staying! Why don't you come home? By the way, they have five children. They have four others they can lose over there. What makes any what gives any rationale to anyone staying there? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I could give you a much an illustration on a much smaller scale. And far more, far less significant. Was it worth it? Was the last 12 weeks of our life worth it? Was the last 12 weeks of living in a carnival funhouse where everything is out of focus and never got a sense that we were ever on solid ground? Was it worth it? No. 
No, it wasn't. But is he worth it? Yes, he is. And he said, the only people who ever find their lives are people who are willing to lose them. You want a reason to do so? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It ought to change the way we live. Our Father, I do pray that you will use this small portion of your word to remind us that there's nothing intrinsically valuable about wrestling with beasts in Ephesus. It only becomes valuable when it's done in the light of a resurrected Christ who promises his people that they too, though they die, yet will they live again. Like the promises of eternity so impact us and be so emblazoned on our souls that no risk is too great No sacrifice too large. No danger too scary. For people who know that though we die, yet shall we live again. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.